By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched round them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and rooted foreign armies. Women received their, back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins and destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And please do have Hebrews open on your lap electronically or in paper form. I would appreciate it if you check what I'm saying as we look into the Bible. On the uh, 21st of April in uh, 2013, my brother did something I will never do. And that is he started and then he finished a marathon. I don't mind doing it on two wheels. Uh, four wheels are far more comfortable, but I will never do it on my two feet because I hate running. I don't mind chasing someone with something I want, maybe a ball of an oval-shaped variety or uh, a round variety. I don't mind. But uh, one thing I will never do is run a marathon, but he did. When you run a marathon, I'm told or never experienced that once you've run your first, you can get an addictive tendency to do it again. Uh, and so all there is once you've done one is to improve your time. It's going to be you against the clock. It's you against your personal best. It's you and to see if you can uh, raise more money than last time if you're do it, doing it for charitable reasons or causes. But the one thing that matters is when you start that you must finish. Now that is an inadequate illustration for what is happening in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we've seen time and again, we saw it last week with the frame that surrounds Hebrews 11, that in chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, and in chapter 12, verse 1, the Christians in the uh, original context were struggling with slander. They were being maligned. Chapter 10, verse 32. Chapter 10, verse 33, they were suffering for the cause of following Jesus. And in chapter 12, verse 1, the other side of a, a picture frame, we called it, that surrounds Hebrews 11, they were struggling with the reality that we all struggle with, namely not slander, maybe not suffering, but we all struggle with sticky sin. And the only way you're going to get through, having begun the race, well, you need something. And it's not a pair of trainers. It's not some isotonic drink at the fuel stop at 10 miles or 15 miles. You don't need a piece of tin foil or whatever they get given, a thermal blanket at the end. 
you need an ingredient, you need something, so that once you've started the race being a Christian, with all the difficulties and hardships you will face, you need something to get through to the end. And what is it? And how do you get it? Those are two things I want to look at. What is it? And how do you get it? Number one, what is it that you need, having begun the marathon of following Jesus to finish the race? What do you need and how do you get it? First of all, what is it? Well, on the surface, the answer is pretty clear because it's repeated so often. What do you need having started the race? You need it then. What do you need to finish the race? Well, it's faith. It's faith. That's the answer on the surface. It's pretty obvious because it's almost on every sentence. If you read the whole chapter, and you've read it over two consecutive Sundays, you'll see this. By faith they did this. By faith they did that. God spoke a promised word and these men and women took God at his word. And that's a short definition of what faith is. But what are we talking about here at the end of Hebrews 11? When the tone gets darker, when the mood gets more serious, where the victories are there, but also there are severe and deep and lasting struggles. And they're presented side by side. It's, it's there in verses 32 to 35, and it's there in verses 36 to 38. The key to understanding faith, not on a surface level, not just reading it sentence by sentence, the key to grasping what it actually is, is to understand what some people could say is the interpretive key to the passage. The interpretive key to the passage is seeing that in these verses there are two lists, and I've just mentioned them to you. Here's the first list, verses 32 to 35, but then there's a second list, verses 36 to 38. Once you see that, you can get a grasp, not just surface level what faith is, you can begin to flesh it out. Look at the first list, verses 32 to 35. All the people mentioned here are weak, but God by his grace turns their weaknesses to strength. See that in verse 34. All these people looked like they were going to lose, but by God's empowerment and strength and intervention, they win. All of these people were oppressed, verses 32 to 35, but God acts in a miraculous way of intervention so that they succeed. Their weakness was turned into strength. Here's a few examples, verse 33. Daniel chapter 6, it says, Shut the mouth of lions. There's Daniel. In Daniel chapter 6, and God intervenes in a supernatural way so that these ravenous animals do not rip apart his servant Daniel. Look at verse 34, quenched the power of fire. Back in Daniel again. That's talking about his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. They're there inside of a fiery furnace that's heated up, I think, six or seven times more. It's gas mark 25. It's so severe and strong that soldiers who are surrounding it, who make it, get consumed by it. And yet God intervenes in a miraculous way so that out of weakness they become strong. God brings them out. Escaped the edge of the sword, verse 34. In all probability, that's talking about Elijah in the book of Kings, that he escapes the evil clutches of Queen Jezebel, who wants to cut him in half. It could be talking about Isaiah. It could be talking about Elisha. Most people think it's talking about Elijah. But here's the big point, having looked at Daniel and Elijah, and possibly Elisha and Isaiah. Here's the big point, verse 34. All of these people are weak, 
But verse 34 says, God made them strong out of weakness. People like Gideon, Judges chapter 6, people like Gideon who was weak, who was scared, who was small, but he, because of God's bigness, with 300 men who lapped from the lake, he defeated the strength of the Midianite army. Think about Samson, whose weakness was turned into strength. We was reading this with the kids just last night, actually. There's Samson. He had so many flaws and failures, but God used his weakness and his God-given strength. He wasn't like Schwarzenegger or someone like that or Jason Statham from modern people. God made Samson strong because his spirit dwelt within him. And so not in his life, but in his death, he says, strengthen me just one more time and let me get revenge on the Philistines who took my two eyes. What's happening? Weak people who God makes strong. People who are going to de be defeated, God gives them victories. People who are made low, God sends them out victorious. And here's the point the author is making. Verse 29, by faith they passed through the sea. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Verse 31, by faith Rahab did not do this when she was tempted to. All of these deliverances, these mighty acts, came about not because these people were mighty, but because God is great, and God is majestic, and God is the God of deliverance. They put their hope not in themselves, they put their hope in God, and God performed miraculous interventions. He suspended natural causes. He put the pause button, not on the skybox, but on human history, and he did something extraordinary something unique and he brought his people out because by faith God intervened and rescued his servants but but God in his sovereignty does not always work that way we love it when God works that way we love victories we love rescues we love miraculous interventions because they grab our hearts but God doesn't always work that way Ask anyone with grey hairs who's been a Christian for a while. God does not always work that way, and he's still sovereign. Take the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, 18 years old. She jumps into what you think is deep enough water, and as you know, she becomes a quadriplegic. Her arms and her limbs don't work anymore. She's 18 years old. The whole of her life, her future is ahead of her, and yet... God ordained that on that day the water would be that depth and she became a quadriplegic. How do we cope with that? Well, how did her friends cope with that? That's what's interesting. If you read her story, alongside Johnny came some Christian friends and they said, paraphrasing, if you have faith, God will heal you. If you have enough faith, God will heal you. And if God does not heal you, that's because you don't have enough faith, says Johnny. You see... People came alongside Johnny and praise God she didn't believe them. People came alongside Johnny and they had an understanding of faith that stops at verse 35. Because up to verse 35, you can preach the prosperity gospel. You can preach that God always delivers. But the trouble is, the chapter does not end at verse 35. There's another side to the coin. If you understand, friends, if anyone has taught you, if you believe, if you're captivated by the lie that the Bible does not teach, that if you just have enough faith, you can 
move mountains. If you just have enough faith, cancer will leave you. If you just have enough faith, God will always deliver you. That is not what the Bible teaches. It never says that. There's a difference between what God has promised to do, but then our agenda for what we would long God to do. And the trouble is, when we place our faith in our agenda, God, if you are there, you will do this for me. God, if you do this, you will save my son who's walked away from the faith. If you do this, then you will rescue. If you do this, you will turn back. If you do this, you will halt. And God may work in a miraculous way, but he may not. And he's sovereign just the same. And that's why this is a hard word to hear. Because we love, do we not, having an agenda for God? We cry, literally, for people to be saved. We long for people to be rescued from the dark corridor and shadow of death. We long for the medics to be wrong. And God can and sometimes does intervene in the most miraculous way. So we always pray for miracles. But we pray for miracles in understanding that God is sovereign over all. And this chapter does not end at verse 35, which is why we need to look at the hard verses that follow. And not just have an agenda for God, we need also to have faith in a God who can save and rescue and performs miracles, but sometimes he does not, and he's glorious just the same. Because you can think, can't you? God, if you're there, it would be great if I got this new job. God, if you're there, it would be great if my neighbours moved away because they play loud music. God, if you're there, it would be great if you would do this and this. We can think we know better than God, and at that point... In our minds, God can stop being God and we elevate ourselves because we know best. But there is this major division, verse 36, but others. And what do we do with that? But other people God did not save, God did not rescue, God did not deliver. And it looks like God has left them, but he hasn't. And to understand this, let me just track back to verse 35, to this interesting phrase. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured and refused or refusing to accept release. Now, how do we understand that? All the Bible commentators agree that this is talking about an event that happens on that one sheet of paper in between our Old and New Testaments. In between our Old and New Testaments, there's a sheet of paper, if it's in a paper form, not if it's electronic, that is a 400-year point of quiet in the history of Israel, or rather from the lips of God. But in that time where history continued, there was the time of the Maccabean martyrs. And all the commentators agree that during that time, this reference is a pinpointing one event under the rule of a tyrant, a Syrian tyrant called Antiochus Epiphanes, who came and occupied Israel. He was a nasty piece of work. He was like Hitler and Stalin's forerunner. He was like, well, he was just terrible. And so one of the things he loved to do was to get Christians to denounce their faith. Now, this is gory, but I think it's appropriate, so let me tell it to you. If you this afternoon Google 2 Maccabees chapter 7, you will read of the story of a lady with seven sons. What Antiochus Epiphany loved to do is to get Christians to come into the public sphere, into the marketplace, and to denounce their faith. He threatened boiling oil. He threatened torture. He threatened physically pressing them and crushing their bones if they would not renounce the Lord Jesus Christ and his faith. 
It was absolutely disgusting and terrible. And in 2 Maccabees 7, it tells the story of one mum who had seven sons. And Antiochus Epiphanes forced the mum to renounce the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for them. Will you not say that Jesus Christ is not Lord? She said, I will not. If you don't, I will torture your sons. The first son came and he refused to denounce the Lord Jesus Christ and says there is a better resurrection coming. The second son lost his life. The third son lost his life and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. One of the sons heard these verse words from his mother. Take courage, said the mother to her sons as he was about to lose his life. It was not I, said the mum, that gave you life and breath. It was the creator of the world who devised the origin of all things and who will in his mercy give life and breath back to you since you now forget yourself for his sake. The son died a horrible, bloody death for the sake of King Jesus. He was martyred, but he was convinced of a, a second resurrection. And one of the sons says this, You can take my limbs, you can take my tongue. I'll receive them again in the resurrection. Take them, I'll get them back. I will get them when I will see Jesus face to face. I will give them up for King Jesus because I know I'll get them back. We know absolutely nothing of this in the West, do we? Nothing of standing up for Jesus, knowing that it will cost us our life, knowing that it could be internment or imprisonment. That time is coming, is it not? But it's a reality for hundreds of thousands of Christian brothers and sisters around God's world that this is still real. It's not 2,500 years ago or something like that. And so one commentator puts it like this, the greatest challenge of the book of Hebrews is to cultivate such a deep and satisfying relationship with God that we rest in him whether we live or whether we die, whether we're comfortable or whether we're miserable. The great challenge of the book of Hebrews is to cultivate an unshakable confidence that God himself is better than anything life can give or that death can take away from us. Here's this man knowing that he's going to lose his eyes, he's going to lose his limbs, and he says, I will not renounce the Lord Jesus Christ because you can take my life and I know I'm going to get it back in the greater resurrection. What do these people have to get through to the end of the spiritual marathon? They have faith. So how do we get it? Point number two. How do we get it? Look at verses 39 and 40. This is a little cryptic, but it's there. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Two things, look at what it's saying, verse 39. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. What made these people great? What made them strong? I mean, these are Premier League Christians, right? And we're kind of conference level or Ryman League, if that still exists. There's no way we could be like these. I kind of quiver when I knock on a door. I quiver at the photocopier when someone says, you went to church yesterday? There's no way I could be like these people. 
What makes them great, whether there's an intervention or not? What makes them great, whether there's a miracle or not? What makes them great is where they're looking. Not through glasses, not through binoculars, but they're looking forward and they're looking up and they're trusting in a God who can intervene. That's the first thing. Look at the second thing, verse 40. Here the writer has the audacity to say that God has planned something better for us. God has planned something better for us. We've begun to receive it. We've begun to receive what they're looking for. But verse 40 is talking about something that is even greater. They are waiting for us as in a stadium for us to join them and we're going to enjoy something even greater. Certainly anything greater than this world offers. What I think the point is making is they are waiting for us. They are longing to see us. They are spurning us on in the race of faith so that their joy will only be completed when we are with them, united with Jesus Christ in the city of God. Now, how is that possible through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? And here's the thing, if you're tempted to think, I could never be like these people. I get my knees go to jelly when someone says, what, you're a Christian? I could never explain I could never ask a friend to open the Bible with me when we think that they're greater than us. Here's something that challenges me and you. We have something greater than they did. We touched on this last week. We have something they did not. They were looking into the future. They're looking forward. They're looking up. They're looking for one who would come. They're looking for a rescuer. But we can look back and see it with crystal clarity. 2020 spiritual vision that the Lord Jesus Christ died, rose. He is ascended on the third day. We can see that clearly. They could see it dimly and this is how they lived. We can see it clearly. So we have, in God's strength, the potential to live lives of faith because God is great and we are weak. But we see it more clearly, do you see? This is not something vague in the future. This is a historical reality that we can look back upon. And so we can live a life of faith just like they did. Our challenges will be far smaller. But we look back with greater clarity. Verse 37, they were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, persecuted. That's, that's not me. I can't even invite someone to the remembrance service. I find it so hard. I know you do. But we're looking back with clarity, with historical reality, on Jesus Christ who died, who rose, who's ascended for me and for you. And so we can live a life of faith just like they can. Because we're confident of two things, I hope. The death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are two big pieces of spiritual concrete. Two big logs that we can stand upon and burn on the fire of our hearts. Let's think about two of them really quickly as we close. Let's flip it round. What difference does the resurrection, looking back on this reality, something greater that they, can, they could just see dimly but we can see it clearly, what difference should that make to us, the resurrection? The whole reason these seven sons and this mum were not afraid to lose their limbs is because they saw the resurrection clearly and they were looking with the eyes of faith. The reason they were not afraid of death, the reason that these friends who were stoned and killed and sawn in two 
how on earth can you bear to even think about that and read that, let alone experience it? Only if you're convinced of the resurrection. Only if you're convinced that this is not all there is. I was moving some books around this week in our house and I found a, a strange book that I rarely dip into, but it told me of Epicurus, who was a Greek philosopher. I read it very, very <laughs> occasionally. And Epicurus said something like this. He said, I would love, I could die happy. That was it. I could die happy if I was absolutely sure that death was the end. I could die happy. I could die happy if I was totally sure that death is just a peaceful oblivion, even. But since nobody can be sure that death is the end, nobody can die happy. Because we don't know. And every religion in the world says, here's a story about how the world uh, or time ends, and here's a story about eternity. Here's a picture of what heaven is like. Here's something that you can aim for. Here's something that you can enjoy. But only Christianity gives us not a story, but a person. A person that's been there, a person that's seen the reality of death and beyond has enjoyed the reality of the resurrection body. So what if you lose an eye? I don't say that glibly. So what if we suffer? So what if people call us names? So what if we find out even in the weeks to come that we need an operation that's going to change us physically? We're going to receive a new body. We're going to receive new limbs. We're going to receive new eyes. We're going to receive the glory of the resurrection. Every other religion gives us a story. Christianity gives us a person who's been there. And Sir Epicurus has no confidence in the future. I just don't know. Next to Epicurus, put James Corden. We watched uh, an interview with Joe and I. James Corden was talking to John Bishop, the comedian. Very good interviewer, John Bishop. He said that how he grew up in a Salvation Army home. And uh, he's a talk show host, if you're not familiar with him. He... Uh, he said, I would go out and I would sing and bang my tambourine and blow a trumpet with my army uniform on. And I thought that was the normal thing to do as a child. But he says, now I speak to my dad and I want nothing to do with Christianity. But the thing that keeps bugging me, he had the uh, intellectual credibility to say, is that my dad says to me, so what, if I'm, so what if you live a different life? So what if you think about the future in a different way? But James, father saying to son, what if I'm right? And what if you're wrong? It's exactly the same as Epicurus. All the other religions have stories. We have a person who's gone through death and has a resurrection body. And as Jesus Christ died and lived, so shall we, Christian friends. It's the first thing. But what about, not resurrection, what about death? What about death? When Jesus Christ shows up at the end of the Gospels, when he has died and when he appears in his resurrected body, what is... Uh, troubling to me when I first became a Christian is that Jesus Christ still has wounds. He still has wounds. I remember as a young Christian thinking, if Jesus Christ was to get a resurrection body, why does he still have wounds? I mean, would they not be got rid of? Would there not be a perfected body with, a, with the holes in his hands filled in? Would there not be, if there was a film, a makeup artist who would gloss over those things? What's the point of the wounds? Why are they still there? He's come back from the dead in the resurrection body, but it's marred in some way. And then the more I reflected on it and the more I read about it and saw about it, I saw actually that these wounds, they don't deter or take away from Jesus' glorified body. They make it more beautiful because of what it stands for. When uh, his disciples were looking at the body of Jesus, when Thomas put his hand in his side, when they saw that he ate food, 
when they remembered that they'd just betrayed him and now he's embracing them, when they saw that Jesus passed through a wall and ate fish, when they saw this thing, they saw for the first time who Jesus was with the eye of faith. They had an agenda for Jesus. Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, will you make us your cabinet? Jesus, when you come into power, will you get rid of those horrible Romans? They had an agenda for Jesus, but they didn't believe in him until they saw the wounds. Until they saw the wounds. And that's just like us. You can have an agenda for Jesus. But this passage says, no, don't have an agenda for Jesus. You need to trust Jesus, whether you can see what he's doing or whether you can't. Because you're looking at him with the eyes of faith. Here are the disciples in the first century, and they say, our lives are ruined. Jesus has died. Our Lord has left us. Tears down their face, confusion in their minds and hearts. And they could not see the very thing that was giving them salvation, Jesus' death. It was going to give them something beyond their wildest dreams, beyond what they could imagine, heaven itself. They thought Jesus was ruining their lives. But actually, he was saving them. He was giving them something more glorious. Friends, if you can see this, not just the resurrection, so you'll get a new body. But if you understand the death of Jesus and the beauty of his wounds, all these sufferings, all these deep waters and trials, all these fires and storms that God leads us into and God presences himself with us in the midst of, they have a greater glorious purpose that we will only see in that day. We won't see it now. I think the reason for the wounds is this. The death of Jesus, the wounds of Jesus, make him even more beautiful than if he didn't have them. Of course Jesus could reappear without the wounds, but the death of Jesus and the wounds of the cross show Jesus in all his beauty and all his glory. In the same way this, the resurrection of Jesus means that every single sorrow that you experience in this life, every misunderstanding, every slander, every suffering, every sticky sin that you can't shrug off, actually, in that day, it will make the joy greater. It will make heaven something, not just a longing, but a heavenly reality that's real. It makes the glory greater. It makes the joy greater. Because, I don't know how, but, at that point in the future, when we see the whole of human history, when we're in eternity, we will see that actually there's something about the reality of the Christian faith that it doesn't need success. That's what makes it more beautiful. I don't know how, but it will. It's the ultimate defeat of evil when even as Christians we don't see a miraculous intervention, we don't see a victory of faith in this life. Our faith is more robust and strong and God is more glorified when we persevere through the fires, through the waters, than it would be without them. Christianity, Hebrews 11, shows us that faith is taking God at his word, but it's a faith that doesn't need success in this life because we know that victory will come in the next. Let's pray together. Father, these are heavy words and weighty passages that we would love to skip over. We would love every time we pray that there would be a victory and a deliverance. We love that Matilda would get better today and that all her suffering would end. We would love that physical ailments, we love that spiritual sight would be given to loved ones, even today if we prayed. But sometimes 
in your good sovereign purposes beyond our understanding and our agenda for you, you say no. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. Help us not just to be patient with you, but to be people who trust you. Because all the way, you, our Saviour, leads us. Amen. Amen.